following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Hi, my name is Stacy. I don't know about uh, any of you, but this feels strangely familiar to me. I uh, thought it was funny that the uh, heat is off today. I thought, well, this is providential. Now you won't know if I'm nervous or if I'm going into hypothermia. And if I pass out, you also won't know if it was because of nerves or because all the blood was rushing to my core to protect my internal organs. Either way, it all works out. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, if you will, please. We're going to start in Ephesians 2, and then we're going to go to the book of Titus here in a little bit. So just be prepared to switch over to Titus when the time comes. While you're turning, let me say a few things. Uh, I am truly truly humbled and honored to be up here today. Um, you know, if you don't know all that God has done over the past four years, then you need to talk to some people who have been here for a bit and kind of hear the whole story. Because what God has done at Cornerstone over the past four years is nothing short of amazing and it's highly unusual. And so I kind of want to say some stuff at the beginning that's not really tied to my sermon, but I want to give some honor where I think some honor is due. First, Chris, I want to thank you personally. Uh, a lot of you may not have an appreciation for this, but when there's a pastoral transition in most churches, you know, the new pastor coming in doesn't really want the old pastor sticking around. And Chris not only allowed it, he pursued it. He encouraged it. He sought it, and he pursued Jamie and I, and we are so, so grateful. Chris has been far more than a pastor to me. Chris has been a friend. He has loved me and cared for me and prayed for me and my family. He has pursued us. He's done all these things. Uh, he has taught and led this church well, and there was no one that I would want more as a pastor. And the same actually applies to Kristen with Jamie. She has loved her and cared for her like family. And so Chris, on behalf of Jamie and I, we are so grateful. Uh, Jordan and Caleb and John and Nathan, I don't know if he can hear me, uh, all the elders as a whole, I would say the same for them as well, that they loved us and pursued us and cared for us over these four years, and we are so grateful for their friendship and partnership in the gospel that has continued unchanged. And then, of course, finally to all of you, especially those of you who were here through all of this, you have been so good and kind to us, and we love you so much. Cornerstone is our family. It always has been and always will be. It is our home, and we're so grateful. For those of you who are newer and perhaps are a little bit confused as to what's going on right now. You're not getting some of the jokes and the references. Uh, it was four years ago on a Sunday in January, funny enough, right after a snow event too, kind of oddly, that I stood up here and announced my resignation as the lead teaching pastor at Cornerstone after a little more than 10 years of serving in that role. And when I did that at the time, I didn't know what God had for us next. All I knew was that my time at Cornerstone had come to an end. My, this season had been wonderful, but it, it had come to an end, and I knew that God had something else for us. I just, I didn't know what that season was, and so initially, I thought I was going to start a business. Jamie had just started her real estate business, and I thought, okay, I'll start one too, kind of alongside of that, and so I was going to do a financial services business. But while her business took off, mine didn't. It struggled, and it was very discouraging, very discouraging. I actually could talk quite a bit about that, but I don't have time for that today. So I began praying a lot. And one of the things I began to pray during that time was, God, if you have something else for me, if this wasn't the path that you had chosen, if you have something else, will you bring it to me without me having to go look for it? Like, I didn't want to go pursue something, put out, you know, and I, didn't, I wanted God to bring it to me. 
And it was one day in December of 2018 when he answered that prayer, my phone rang late one afternoon, and I got a phone call from Wendy Manos, who's our Vice President of uh, Community Relations at CPC. And she was like, hey, I know this is a weird, out-of-the-blue kind of phone call, but would you be willing to come in and have a conversation with Toby and I about a possible new role at CPC? And I was like, okay, sure, right? I mean, I'll go in, I'll have a conversation with anyone. And so I did. I went in and we had the next uh, couple of weeks, over the next couple of weeks, we took uh, time to have a number of conversations, myself and Toby and Wendy and some other people. And of course, Jamie and I are talking during this time. And at the end of all of that, I gave Toby a call and I said, thank you so much. I'm honored, but I'm going to pass. I don't think I'm the right fit for this. I don't think it's the right timing. So thank you. And you know, you do that kind of thing and you're like, did I make a mistake? Like, you know, God, I prayed for this, you did it, but now I'm turning it down. Is, are you trying to do the right thing? I was like, well, God, if I'm wrong about turning it down, bring it back. And it was less than a week later, Toby texted me and said, hey, can we do lunch? And we went to lunch, and he said, please reconsider. And long story short, I ended up becoming vice president of campaign management at CPC. Now, I always have to explain that title because it makes absolutely no sense. Basically, I oversee two teams within CPC. One of my teams runs all of the big public stuff you see coming out of CPC. So whether it's the Walk for Life or the Benefit Banquet or you get you know, the newsletter in your mailbox, the prayer card, you see something on Facebook, a video that we might show you, all of those big public things comes out of that one team. The other team I run handles all of our ministry relations. So all of the many churches across Hampton Roads that we work with, I've got a team of people who talk to them, call them, set up things like baby bottle campaigns, which I'll talk about in a moment, have speakers go out, walk for life, all that kind of stuff. And you know what? I am so glad I took it because it was exactly what I needed. It gave me the opportunity to go out and build something again. We've built entirely new things, new ways of doing things. We've got a brand new team, uh, many of whom are in this room right now. They had to be here for work purposes. Uh, no. You know, it's been such a joy to watch how God has worked. And so I stand before you today a truly grateful man. But I also stand before you today as a representative of CPC, and this is a part of my job. I get to go out and do this from time to time. I've been at churches all across Hampton Roads now. Uh, I've really enjoyed that opportunity to see the larger body of Christ at work. And whenever I go out, I always try to familiarize myself a little bit with what that church has done in connection to CPC. And so first time ever, I've been on staff at CPC now for three years. I've never asked for this. But this week, I asked my team to give me some data about Cornerstone's impact on CPC over the years, all right? So CBC's impact on CPC. And uh, we're not going to play a game with this, all right? But I am going to ask you to guess things, just not out loud. It's not the price is right. Just in your mind, be thinking of like what these numbers could be. But I wanted to show you, because this encouraged me a lot on Friday when I got this report, what this church that God has put together has done over the years of CPC. We'll start with baby bottles, Okay. We've been doing baby bottles with CPC for 10 years. If you don't know what this is, out at the table on your way out today, we're starting our campaign this Sunday, are these little empty baby bottles. You can pick one up or two or three, I don't care. Take them home, and you're going to fill them up with uh, spare change, cash checks, gold, silver, stocks, bonds. We don't really care. Put something valuable in here, bring it back to us, and we're going to use it, all right? We've been doing this since 2010. So I want you to guess, don't say it out loud, how much you think we've raised it cornerstone in baby bottles over the years. Here is the number. It is $23,309.56 in baby bottles. That's a lot of pennies, folks. A lot of, 
a lot of pennies. That's amazing. Here's the next one. This one shocked me. Direct giving. If you didn't know, Cornerstone has had CPC in our missions budget since 2009 in some way, shape, or form. We give to CPC as one of our, our missions groups, okay? How much, I was shocked, just stick your gas again, don't say it out loud, how much do you think Cornerstone has given directly to CPC since 2009? Well, here's the right answer, $60,134.81. I was blown away by that, I had no idea. Here's the big one, walk for life. We've had fundraising walkers participate in CPC's Walk for Life since 2008. If you didn't know what the Walk for Life is, it's our largest fundraising event of the year. All of the services we provide to our patients are free to them. So this is, we pay for that by raising funds. Largest event of the year. We've been involved since 2008. 95 individual unique walkers have participated from Cornerstone in the Walk for Life since 2008. That was interesting as well. Here's the total. We've raised $171,435.84 through the Walk for Life. That is, again, unbelievable. Uh, this was an interesting one. Employees. How many people <laughs> at CPC are from Cornerstone? At this point, it's most of the room, really. We're getting close. I believe in hiring who I know. What can I say? All right. Nine. Nine is the total. Seven of them are current, okay? We are the number one church in terms of employees at CPC. We make up over 10% of CPC's workforce. Uh, on this note, I will say we are hiring, so if you would like to. No, seriously, it's not a joke. We, we're desperately in need, particularly of patient advocates. Those are our counselors who sit in the rooms with the women who are considering abortion and try to address their fears. So if you're interested in it from a part-time or full-time perspective, Go to helpwomen.life, and you can sign up there today. And then finally, volunteer hours. The answer here is just too many to count because this church has been so, so gracious to help for so long. So it's just unbelievable. On behalf of Toby and everyone at CPC, let me say thank you. Now, let me give you a couple of updates about CPC in general just as I begin here before we read Scripture. Um, I'm going to give you one good update, and then I'm going to give you one bad update. I want one thing for you to be able to praise God for. And one thing for you to pray for, okay? Here's the praise. We set a new record for number of women served this past year, 2021. Now, the old record had been set the year prior. 2020, we served 1,935 individual women, came through our clinics. Uh, we were blown away by that, especially with COVID and everything going on. Just God was so good, brought us an influx of, of patients. We were really, really grateful. But as 2021 came around, we didn't know exactly what was going to happen. And so, you know, we're praying and asking God to continue to extend our, our reach and our impact. And he did. We set a new record for number of individual patients served. And before I tell you what the number is, let me give you two little comments. One, we did not push anyone away to keep it at this number, nor did we bring anyone in who shouldn't have come just to get it to this number. And that's because in 2021, we served 2,021 patients. It was 2021 and 2021. Couldn't have planned that if we had wanted to, really, but that's what happened. That's the truth. So we're praising God for that. This is part of why we need to hire more patient advocates, more counselors. We've continued to have an influx of women seeking our services, and so God has been good. You can praise him for that. Now let me give you not so good of an update as a prayer, um, and I'm going to try something new on you, brand new. No one's ever heard this before. We've been trying to figure out how to communicate this problem that we're dealing with right now in a way that actually makes sense to people so that they understand the gravity of the situation. So I'm going to try an analogy first before I explain the problem. We're going to talk about the retail industry for a moment. Now, for some of you youngins out here, those of you under the age of 40, 
Okay, for some of you youngins, you don't remember how the retail world worked back in the old days. But back in the days of yore, if you wanted to buy something, you had to get up off your couch, and you had to get in a car, and you had to drive to a store. And you didn't even know if the thing you wanted was going to be at the store back then. You just went and hoped. And it may be there, or you may have to go to another store. But whenever you found it, you got it, and you took it up to a cashier, and you talked to them, and you gave them money, and then you went home with your item. That's how shopping used to work. And the entire retail world was on that same playing field. Sure, there were bigger retailers and smaller retailers, and they were competing with each other for market share by maybe having more products or better prices or better service or whatever the case may be. But the whole world kind of worked that way when it came to shopping. That was until Al Gore invented the Internet back in whatever year that was. Remember that? And, and the Internet came around, and all of a sudden this thing called, called online shopping appeared. And at first, some people were like, oh, that's no big deal. Nothing's going to change in the world of retail. But what folks didn't understand was that online shopping wasn't going to just be a new addition to the retail playing field. It was going to completely destroy it. It was going to be a completely new playing field now. Because now, all of a sudden, people could sit at home and buy their stuff there and have it shipped to their house, and they never had to go out. And there were some retailers who didn't make it. Little mom and pops who went out of business, big ones, Sears, Kmart, went out of business, even some other big ones, Walmart and Target had to completely change their way of doing things in order to adjust to this new environment. If you can understand how significant of a change online shopping was to the retail industry, then perhaps you will better appreciate what I'm about to say in that the same exact thing is happening right now in the abortion industry. For years, the abortion industry, and it's an industry, it's a business, okay? You can think of it in business terms. The abortion industry has worked on pretty much one playing field, okay? There were people, you had to get up and literally go to a brick-and-mortar location to have a surgical or chemical abortion, perform chemicals abortion pill. Um, you, you know, there was money exchanged and people went home and there was bigger players and smaller players and everybody was jockeying for market share on this field. But everything changed in 2020 with COVID. Under the auspices of responding to COVID, the FDA began a pilot program where they began to allow certain abortion providers to do telehealth abortions. In other words, a woman could just log onto her computer, could set up an appointment with a provider, they'd have a Zoom call, and as long as she answered the questions correctly, they would write a prescription for the abortion pill, which would then be delivered to her house within about 48 to 72 hours, and she never had to leave. Private, quiet, convenient. And by the FDA standards, it was a huge success. Great, everything worked wonderfully. And so just this past year, 2021, they rolled that rule change out nationwide in every state where it's allowed. Virginia, by the way, is a state where that's allowed. And so now, this, the rise of online abortion providers is changing the entire playing field of the abortion industry. Previous to all of this, we had three abortion providers here in Hampton Roads. Planned Parenthood was the biggest one in Virginia Beach. We had two other ones in Norfolk. Today, we have those three still, and we have now six online abortion providers. Nine, the number has tripled just in the past few months. And, and it's going to change everything. Like, I expect, Toby expects, that we're going to see some brick-and-mortar abortion providers going out of business. And in years past, that would have been great news, wonderful news. 
it's not great news now. Because it's not meaning that there are fewer abortions. It meaning, it's meaning that the market share is shifting online. Does that make sense? Do you understand what the problem is here? It also means that we're never again likely going to know the actual number of abortions happening in Hampton Roads. Because for years, all the brick and mortar providers, they had to actually report their numbers to the Virginia Department of Health. We could count it. These online ones, to the best of our knowledge, don't have to do that. We might start seeing drops in abortions, you know, reported abortions through the Virginia Department of Health, but that's not going to mean anything anymore. We don't know what's coming. So do you understand the seismic shift that is occurring with the change to this online abortion model? Do you get why it's so, such a big deal? Please be in prayer for this. Please be in prayer. I, I can't say too much. I can't say anything at all about what we're thinking because we know that we're watched and monitored and listened to. So all I can say is be in prayer that we will have wisdom because we are not going to just sit back and let this happen without responding. But pray that God will give us wisdom and the resources and the wherewithal to go out and, and address this new landscape because we do not want to be left behind. We will not be left behind in the midst of it. Thank all of you. I thank all of you for your support. It really does take us all working together to make a difference. And for those of you who are already involved in the fight, we are so very grateful. All right. I think by now you probably had time to find Ephesians 2. Uh, we're going to read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and then we're going to go to the Lord in prayer together. If you will, look at verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Lord, I pray now as we come to your word that you will make it abundantly clear to us what it is that we are supposed to do, how it is that we are supposed to live. May the great grace that we have been shown in Jesus motivate us to go out and be the ministers of Jesus Christ that you have called us to be, we ask in your name. Amen. So I'm in my 40s now. You know, they say that the best years of a woman's life are the 10 years she spends between 39 and 40. But for men, it doesn't work like that, okay? We don't get to extend our 30s out quite so far. We just sort of roll right into the big four. Some of you are just now getting that. And before we know it, before we know it, we're already feeling its effects. For me so far, the biggest effect that I have felt in my 40s is a tendency to repeat myself a little bit. Um, it's not purposeful necessarily. It's just that I talk to so many people, I forget what I've said to who. And so I'll be in a conversation with someone and I'm sitting there thinking, did I say this to them already? And I'm like, I don't know, I'll just say it again. You know, I don't care. <laughs> That's another nice part about getting older. You just quit caring about a lot of things. 
And uh, I have shared this with before. I do remember I've shared this here at Cornerstone. My dad was actually quite known for this. He uh, had all of these little sayings that he had that he would say to me at different points of, of, of my life and my childhood. And he repeated them over and over again, like a million times, right? Like teenage hyperbole. And uh, I remember this one particular day. I don't even remember what he said, but he said one of these little sayings again. And me and my, no doubt, teenage uh, uh, impertinence was like, Dad, why do you say the same things over and over and over again? And the funny thing is, even though I don't remember what led up to that, I have never forgotten his response. His response was, because I'm hoping that one of these times they'll stick. Well, you know what? I'm in my 40s. And I remember a lot of those sayings. They actually did stick, and they've been so helpful to me as I've grown older. Now, why did I tell you all of this? Well, this morning, I'm going to repeat myself a little bit here at the beginning, but I wanted you to know up front that I'm doing it knowingly and purposefully. I want to read to you two verses from Ephesians 4. You don't have to turn there, but you can if you want. I'll put it on the screen here. But I want to read Ephesians 4, 11, and 12 in order to remind us of a truth that I have repeated over and over and over again here at Cornerstone over the years. Paul writes in verse 11, And he, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teacher, teachers excuse me, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. In Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12, Paul gives us what I be, believe to be one of the clearest most succinct uh, pictures of how a healthy, biblical, local church is supposed to function, and it all begins with Jesus, right? In verse 11, Jesus is the one giving gifts to his church, and these gifts are not abilities, nor are they things. They are positions of leadership. They are roles of authority and service within the church, and you see them here, they are apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherd teachers, okay? Those two words refer to the same role. And the people who fill these roles are given a very specific mandate. They are to go out and equip the saints to do the work of ministry, all right? So that's their job. They're equipping, they're coaching, they're training, encouraging, teaching. This is what they're supposed to do. But what I need us to remember more than anything else right this moment is who it is that is supposed to actually go out and do the work of ministry. Notice that it's not the pastors. It's not the apostles. It's not the evangelists. It's not the prophets. Who's supposed to go do the work of ministry? Well, it's the saints, not the New Orleans kind. It's us. It's you and it's me. We are the ones who are given the task by God to go out and do the work of ministry. So in a healthy, biblical, local church, what you're going to find are pastors, shepherd, teachers who are equipping the saints. And then you're going to find saints who are going out and actually doing the work of ministry. It's such a, such a novel idea. Football season's winding down, of course, but I'll use it as an example. Today, when these games begin, whose job is it to go out and throw the pass, to block, to kick, to, to run the ball? It's not the coach's job. You get that, right? The coach's job is to train, to equip, to Get the team ready. But at the end of the day, when the game's on the line, it's the player's job to go do it. Well, ministry within a healthy biblical local church is supposed to work the same way. And over the years at Cornerstone, this idea, this thought, this truth became sort of like my theme, right? My slogan, my hobby horse, I guess. Like my dad, I even came up with a little saying to try to help folks grasp it. And also like my dad, I repeated it over and over and over again 
hoping that it would stick. It went something like this. Chris actually referenced it earlier. Imagine you're in the Navy. I would say to you, hey, they're a sailor. Guess what? You're not really a sailor. If you're a believer, you are really a minister of Jesus Christ, cleverly disguised as a sailor. The whole world looks at you and thinks sailor. But I know better because I know who you really are. Hey, stay-at-home mom, guess what? You're not really a stay-at-home mom. I know you've got the minivan and the kid on the hip, but you're really a, believer, a minister of Jesus Christ, cleverly disguised as a stay-at-home mom. And the beauty of that little saying was that it works for every single occupation imaginable except for vocational ministers. They're not disguised at all. Everybody looks at them and thinks ministers, so it doesn't work for them. But for the rest of us, we're like secret agents. You know, we, we've infiltrated offices and ships and warehouses and families and neighborhoods. We're everywhere, and people don't always know it. But we're there, and when you begin to think like this, to really embrace this idea, you begin to realize that it doesn't matter what you do for a job because it doesn't change who you are. You are a minister of Jesus Christ, period. So guess what? Go out and minister. It's been a truth that I've repeated for years and years now, but here's where I want to build off of that a little bit this morning. Whether you've heard me say this a million times before, or whether today is the first time you've ever heard this concept, the question that people most commonly ask after hearing this challenge to go out and be the minister of Jesus Christ that they really are is, how? How do I, how, how do, I do that? Like, how am I supposed to go minister? What, it, what do you expect me to do? And, and those aren't invalid questions. Uh, I think oftentimes they're driven by one of two things. Either A, they're driven by just some personal fear or insecurity that people sometimes have about their own readiness or ability to go minister. But I think more often B, they're driven by a misunderstanding of what ministry is in the first place. Because for far too many American Christians, ministry is either one, something that happens on Sundays, two, something that happens in a church building like this, or three, something that would generally fall under the job description of a vocational minister like a pastor. I'm talking preaching, teaching, counseling, etc. Those things define ministry for a lot of people. And so when I've said to folks, hey, look, you need to go, you know, you are a minister, you need to go do ministry, they go, okay, well, that must mean I should sign up for a nursery and I should probably teach a Sunday school class. And, and I'm like, no, <laughs> no, no, you're, you're missing my point. That's not what I mean at all. Now, don't get me wrong, maybe you do need to do some of those things, but that's not exactly what I'm asking you to do. When I say to you that you are a minister and that you need to go out and do ministries, I am not primarily talking about on Sundays, and I am not primarily talking about what happens in a building like this. I'm actually talking about tomorrow when you go to work. And I'm talking about the day after when you're with your family, and the day after that, and the day after that, and the day after that. And so we come back to the question, how? How are we supposed to go minister? Where do we begin? And this is why we've turned to Ephesians 2, because there's, the truth is there's a number of ways that I could answer the question, how? Okay, there's not just one answer, there's multiple answers, but I don't have time to give you all of those answers. So I've picked the one that I think is the most overlooked. And it's here, sitting in Ephesians chapter 2. As you can see when you look at your text, Ephesians 2 begins by reminding us of who we were. And it's a really bleak picture. Paul tells us that we were dead. 
in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. And when you see Paul talk about walking in something, he means how you lived your normal everyday life. We used to live our normal everyday life in our trespasses and sins. He says we were following the course of this world. We were following the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. He calls him the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. He says we lived in the passions of our flesh. We carried out the desires, the sinful desires of the body and the mind, and that we were, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. As I said, it's a very bleak picture. We were sinners, he says, completely deserving of God's eternal wrath. That's who we were, but something changed. Because God, who is rich in mercy, loved us with a great love. Even when we were still living in a manner that was completely deserving of his wrath, he made us alive together with Christ. Why? By grace. He made us alive by grace. He raised us up with him by grace. He even seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus by grace. All, grace covers all of those things. And all of this was done so that in the coming ages, Paul says, he, God, could show the immeasurable riches of his grace in and through us. In other words, for the rest of eternity, it's going to almost be like we're little trophies of God's grace sitting up on his mantle. Like if he wants to show how gracious he is to sinners, he can be like, look at that guy. That guy doesn't deserve to be here. This is how gracious I am. He's here. Hey, look at that girl. She does not deserve heaven. She deserved hell, but where is she right now? She's forgiven in here. Look how gracious. That's what he's talking about. We're going to forever show the immeasurable riches of his grace for all eternity, which then explains the context of two verses that most Christians know super well. One of the best known verses in all of the New Testament, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so no one can boast. All Paul is doing here is continuing his focus on grace. He just wants to make sure you and I understand that every last detail of our salvation is not our doing. Our faith's not even our own. It's a gift of God. Every, there's nothing here of works. No one is going to boast. God is not going to share his glory with another so you and I don't get any credit. Very well-known verses. But here's the problem. Most Christians stop at verse 9. I don't know if they know anything after verse 9 exists in Ephesians chapter 2. I think they're just like, oh, that's the end of the, the chapter. No. Paul's going to keep going. And I want you to notice verse 10. He says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for, and we hit the pause button. Paul's hand is suspended above the page. We don't know what he's going to write next. And we recognize in this moment that he can say anything he wants, right? Anything he, were, he you know, he's about to tell us what it is that God wants us to do in response to all of this amazing grace. Now that you've been given all of this grace, he's laid it all out for you. What should you go do with it? How should you go live? And he can put anything he wants in the blank. He could have said that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for evangelism. So we can go out and tell more people about this grace. Or he could have said it was for Bible reading so that we could learn more about this grace. Or maybe it was for prayer so we could thank God more for this grace. He could put anything he wants in this blank. But notice what he says. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. 
Really? Good, good works. This is what God wants us to do in response to all of this grace. He wants us to go out and, and do good works? Yeah. That's exactly what Paul writes here. In fact, he takes it to a whole nother level than that. He says that not only were we created in Christ Jesus for good works, but he says that God prepared these good works beforehand so that we would go out and walk in them. Boy, does that sound familiar? How did this whole passage start? In chapter 2, verse 1, he said, we used to walk, live our normal everyday lives in trespasses and sins. But now, after all of this grace has been given, he wants us to go out and walk, live our normal everyday Monday to Sunday lives in good works. So much so that he's even prepared them beforehand for us. That, folks, this is incredible. We're not saved by good works. Paul's made that extremely clear. But he's showing us that the intention or the outworking of our salvation by grace is that we go out and live our lives in these good works. Now, I should probably stop here for a moment and recognize that, you know, uh, there's a reality that many of us in this room will share right about at this point of this message. As evangelical, Bible-believing, Protestant Christians, many of us have like this automatic, knee-jerk, like theological, allergic reaction anytime we hear someone start talking about good works. It's like, ooh, good works, ooh. See, Catholic, you know, what, what's going on here? And that's not a completely unfounded reaction, honestly speaking, because we all know that there are far too many people in this world who, you know, think of good works as some kind of a gospel substitute. So there are some, for example, who think that the gospel is actually based on good works, as if God has this pair of cosmic scales in heaven, and as long as the good you do outweighs the bad, you'll be accepted. That, folks, is a lie. Paul just made that explicitly clear here in Ephesians 2. It's not according to your works. It's not. It's by grace. So if you think that somehow God accepts you by your works, you are living well outside the scope of biblical teaching. So any gospel that is based on works is a gospel that leads us straight to hell. Others outright confuse the gospel with good works. They like completely mix the two up. They, they don't think of the gospel as being about a message of sin of salvation. They think it's just about going out and doing good just showing kindness, right, to everybody. Folks, that too is a lie because the gospel is very much a message. It is the good news that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So don't confuse the message of the gospel with the doing of good works. These two are not the same. But because so many people around us either base their understanding of the gospel on good works or confuse the gospel with good works, as I said, many evangelical, Bible-believing, Protestant Christians have grown almost like a, a theological allergy to even talking about good works. But I'm here today to say to you, A, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Just because other people confuse it and, and abuse it doesn't mean that you and I should ignore it. If anything, we should go out of our way to reclaim a truly biblical view of good works so that we can live in obedience to God. And then B, understand, please, that the doing of good works is one of the God-ordained ministries that he has given to each and every one of us as believers. 
That's exactly what Paul is saying in Ephesians 2.10. That God has made us in Christ Jesus for good works, that he even prepared them beforehand, that we would go out and live our normal everyday lives in them. So when it comes to answering the question that I started with, how? How do I go out and be a minister to me? To me, and I'm not, I'm, I'm nobody, but just to me. This is like the lowest of the low-hanging fruit of how to answer that question. Go do good works. You want to know how to be a minister? Here's part one. Go do good works. That's not all, of course, you should be doing as a minister, but it is certainly a part of what you should be doing. And once you begin to see this truth, folks, you're going to begin to pick up on it all throughout the New Testament. Now, here's where you go to Titus, okay? Turn to Titus right now. Because in, in Titus, we'll start in Titus 2, in Paul's short letter to Titus, he brings this topic up over and over and over again. It's got to be like the, the, the greatest density of any one spot in the New Testament where he's going to talk about good works. And he brings it up so much that you begin to get a sense of what, maybe, wow, maybe this really is a big deal. Maybe it's a bigger deal than I ever thought about or realized before that I should be making this a really important part of my Christian life and of being the minister that God has called us to be. You're in Titus 2, I hope. Look at verse 7. Paul says to Titus directly, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Now, this is a, a, a portion where Paul is training Titus on how to be a pastor. And he's saying to Titus, hey, listen, Titus, you got to be a model of good works to your people. This is a part of what it means to pastor God's flock. It's an aspect of pastoral responsibility to model this for all of the church to see. And so to the elders here at Cornerstone, I'd say to you, you guys have done a fantastic job modeling this for us over the years. Don't stop. Keep it up. Keep going with this, okay? Keep showing us what it means to live a life of good works so that we can go out and respond to God's grace in the same way. Now look down at chapter 2, verse 14. Now he's talking to everybody. And he tells the people there that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are what? Zealous for good works. Part of the reason Jesus died, Paul tells Titus, is so that you and I would go out and be really excited about doing good works. Are you really excited? Are you zealous about some good works? How's that compared to like your love of, of football or your hobby or your family or travel or whatever the case may be? You zealous for that? Because he says here, part of the reason why Jesus gave himself for us is to go out and get excited about doing good works. This is incredible. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Paul commands Titus to remind his people, amongst other things, to be ready, to be ready for every good work as, as if it's supposed to be such a normal and expected part of our lives that you and I should just always be ready for it. Like as soon as it pops up, ooh, there's, a, there's an opportunity to do a good work, I'm ready. Just like we're always to be ready to give an answer for the hope that's in us, we are always to be ready to do good works when they come. Look at chapter 3, verse 8, and chapter 3, verse 14. He uses the same concept. Two times here, Paul tells us that we're supposed to be devoting ourselves to good works. And the word devote here is really interesting because it has the idea behind it of purposeful planning. Like you're going to sit down at the table with pen and paper and a checkbook and your calendar, and you're going to put together a plan. It's not just as it comes up. Yes, you do need to be ready in case it comes up. But much beyond that, you actually need to be strategizing and devoting yourself, going out and doing these good works. You see it again in chapter 3, verse 14. 
These aren't just happenstance as I hear about them or as they happen to come up kind of things. No, there's actually a sense of mission behind our decision to do good works. And remember, that's just Titus. That's just one book, a very small book of that. I could take you to Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. Paul tells the Galatians, as we have opportunity, we're supposed to do good to everyone, especially those who are fellow believers. Or I could go to James 1.27, where James makes this amazing comment where he defines religion for us, pure, undefiled religion. And he says it's taking care of widows and orphans in their affliction and keeping ourselves unspotted from the world. So wait a minute, doing good works on one hand and, and saying no to sin on the other, that's religion, real religion. Which, of course, fits with James in general, chapter 2, verse 14, or James 2, 14. What good is if you say you have faith but don't have works? Can faith save you? No, faith without works is dead. He expects that the Christian life, a genuine Christian life, is going to be filled with all of these good works. And on and on and on we could go. So a zealous, purposeful pursuit of good works that is meant to be a reflection of and response to the gospel of grace, not a replacement of it, mind you, is one of the easiest ways, I would say, for you to go out and be the ministers of Jesus Christ that you truly are. Now, let me make two practical applications from this and we'll be done. I'm going to ask and answer two questions for you. Question number one is, what exactly are good works? Don't know if you noticed, but up to this point, I've yet to define that for you. And that was purposeful, okay? I purposely didn't want to define it up until this moment because here's the truth. There is no single biblical definition of what constitutes a good work. I can't say turn to chapter blah, 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 and you're going to find the definition of good works. It doesn't exist. But I can give you a biblical range of definition of what constitutes a good work. I'll actually let Jesus do it. He probably knows a bit more about it than I do. Matthew chapter 10, verse 42. Jesus says, And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Okay? Got it? Remember that? Lock that up there. John 15, 13. Jesus says, Greater love has no man than this. Does someone lay down his life for his friends? Okay, you got that one? So if I understand these two statements correctly, what that means is that our range of doing good works falls somewhere between giving a cup of cold water on one end and sacrificial death on the other. <laughs> That's a pretty broad range of options, okay? You, you have a lot of freedom in this to go out and use your time, talents, and treasures, whatever God has given you, to do good works. So go be creative and show us what you can do. Anything in that range counts, all right? Number two, where do you start? Okay, you now know what good works are. You know you're supposed to do them. Where do you start? Well, I would suggest to you, biblically speaking, you should start here at Cornerstone. You say, why do you say that? Well, I say it because Paul just told us in Galatians 6, go do good to everyone, but especially especially those of the household of faith. Start here. So, so the question I ask you, and it's a little cliche, I guess, but it's actually very helpful, is look at your time, talents, and treasures, and ask yourself the question, how can you use those to serve God's people here? Um, and you go, well, Stacy, I, I, don't, I don't know of any needs here. 
how can I say this to you nicely? Um, I think you need to open your eyes and you need to talk to some people, all right? Because the truth of the matter is, is you are surrounded by needs in this room right now. Spiritual needs, physical needs, marriage needs, parenting needs, job needs. They're all around you. So if you're not aware of them, you, you're too isolated. You need to live in community with some people and you'll begin to understand the needs that are all around you in this room. And once you see those needs, you begin seeing those needs, can I please beg you to do something? Don't call the elders, at least not at first. It's not that they're not willing to help you. They are, they, they would love to. But, but remember, you're a minister. You're a minister. So go minister. You say, I don't know what to do. Well, then take someone with you. Take a friend, take someone from your community group. If you need help, the elders are here. But first, see if you can meet that need. See if you can be the minister of Jesus Christ. So where do you start? You start here. You start right here in this room. If you see an opportunity to do good, do it. Devote yourself to it. Strategize about it. How are you going to use your time, talents, and treasures that God has given you to do good? And I promise you, I promise you this, the outcome will amaze you. So start here, but don't stop here. Start here, but don't stop here because Paul said do good to everyone not just those of the household of faith. Especially them, but not just them. So start here, but don't stop here. So while it's good and right to devote ourselves to good works within the church, we also equally need to devote ourselves to doing good to those outside the church. I wish I knew a place where you could do that. Oh, wait a minute. I do know a place where you can do that. What a, what a coinky dink, huh? Strange timing at this point. You see, there's this group in town called the Crisis Pregnancy Center of Tidewater, and they are literally, literally serving thousands of men, women, and families here in our community every single year who are facing periods of great darkness and crisis because of an unplanned pregnancy that has sent their lives into a tailspin. And they're giving them not just the message of life, but the message of eternal life through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they honestly could use your help. They could use your time, talents, and treasures to help spare more lives, save more lives, spare more hearts, and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's the beauty of this, folks. Everyone can be involved. Men, women, children, young and old, rich and poor, black and white, educated, uneducated. It doesn't matter. Because all of us working together can make a real difference. So here's what I want you to do. For those of you who are already actively involved in the ministry of CPC, thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. But if you're, today, you're here today and you're not actively involved in the ministry of CPC, I've got, a, I've got a job for you. On the way out today, I want you to stop at the table in the hallway and I want you to pick up one of these little contact cards. Real simple. And I want you to put down your information and I want you to mark how you want to get involved. Maybe it's just to be on our mailing list. I'll take that. Maybe you need to volunteer. Maybe you want to work for us, helpwomen.life, don't forget. Uh, maybe you need to be a financial supporter. Whatever it is, you, everyone needs to do something. And so if you are not actively involved in the ministry of CPC, stop by that table. Becca and Beth will be there. They'll help you get it filled out. They'll take it from you. Fill one of those out, and someone will give you a call, and we will get you involved. Everyone can help. Everyone. 
This is, after all, what I think James is talking about here in James 1.27 when he says the true and pure and undefiled religion before God is caring for widows and orphans in their affliction. Toby asks this question all the time. I think it's a great one. Is there, is there any woman more widowed than the woman on her way to the abortion clinic alone? All alone. I see them, by the way. I am three years. I have yet to get used to this. Every time I walk out of the door at our Green Bar office and I see them, a woman going into the clinic, it kills me because I realize she's thinking about killing her child. She's there most of the times alone. Is there any woman more widowed than the woman walking into the abortion clinic? Is there any child more orphaned than the preborn baby in the womb who has no voice and cannot defend himself and whose own parents and family are seeking his or her death? Any, any greater orphan than that? So if you want to devote yourself to good works, if you want to be ready for good works, if you want to grow in your zeal for good works, then I urge you, I beg you, and I implore you, do not sit on the sidelines any longer. Use your voice. Be the minister that God has called you to be. Get involved and do good by helping us save lives here in our own backyard. Will you bow your heads with me? Jesus, we come to you this morning recognizing that we are more than what we do in life. We are ministers of Jesus Christ, and you have placed us everywhere, all around this community, and, and hopefully you are working in and through us to make a difference here in Southampton Roads. And one of the ways that we see here so clearly that we're supposed to be making this difference is by going out and doing good. And I pray, Lord, that we will never confuse that responsibility in some way with how we gain your favor. It has nothing to do with that. You could not be more clear. But that it will be done as a response, a thankful, grateful response to the great grace that we've been shown, to all the good that you've done us. And so, Lord, I pray that each and every person hearing this today will re recommit themselves to do good works as a part of their gratitude to you for all that you've done for them. Lord, help us to start here. Help us to be actively looking for ways to do one another's spiritual good, as Chris so often says to us here in this room and in this church family. May we be not, not lazy about it. May we be purposeful in it. May we engage one another trying to find ways to do good, to encourage, to help, to come alongside, to lift up. But I pray, Lord, that what starts in this room will spill out of this room into the rest of the community around us. Lord, I know CPC is not the only way for that to be done, but I know it's a great way for it to be done. And I'm thankful for all the people here who already do so much but Lord, I pray that we will all do our part because together we can make a difference. Together we can change the course of families for generations. Together we can spread the gospel to hundreds that come through our doors every single month. Lord, I pray that you will use us as a church family, that you'll use CPC as a ministry to bring you honor and glory in all things. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.